If you say, for example, as Texas did, that you have to teach slavery as if it was a betrayal of the founders' intent, well, that's just completely not true. You could love Thomas Jefferson, but it's inaccurate to say it was betrayal of intent when he owned slaves. And, and what that does when you don't attack that is that it denies the lived experience of every family, every Black American in America whose descendants were slaves. So often ethical labeling has really watered down that sort of solidarity effort into what is called quote-unquote conscious consumerism. And instead of focusing on all of the ways that people have power in their labor, in their communities, it distills all that down to purchasing power, which really then just serves to continue the status quo. I think this is amazing how unknown this is. It's very explicit. It's like lots of New Deal policymaking, that the agenda is to create single breadwinner households. So then by the 70s and 80s, what are the politics that undo the New Deal they're the politics, uh, I mean, of white racism. Progress is not linear um, by any means. And I think this also speaks to the fact that racial oppression is a central organizing feature of our economy. It's not going away anytime soon. And so we need to, as Sadie Alexander said, we need to have a radical reappraisal of our methods and also, I think, a restructuring of the way that we've been doing business. The United States is one of the richest countries in the world. We have one of the most developed medical systems in the world. And we're number one in the people who died of COVID. That is a level of failure that is epic. And I'm beginning to wonder whether this level of failure to cope will not, in fact, be what historians remember was the signal that there's something fundamentally wrong here. 130 out of 309 athletes have no sponsorship. 59 athletes live on less than $400 a month, including 22 who live on less than $200. 13 athletes had to do a crowdfunding to come to the Olympics. Five athletes are Uber drivers. Even though self-tapes existed before, there is definitely now that is the way to get cast. And I think it's a really great opportunity for actors because it's an opportunity for them to be in a comfortable, safe space to do their best work. And I love that. I love that. Welcome to the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our guided tour of the more than 100 shows that make up the Labour Radio Podcast Network. Check them out at labourradionetwork.org. In this week's show... On Monday morning QB, Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, offers her critical take on the conservative culture war over the idea of critical race theory in schools. On Belaboured, Sarah and Michelle talked to Anna Canning, campaigns manager for the Fair World Project, about the limitations of corporate social responsibility and ethical certification. Then we go to a trio of scholars. Should policymakers look to the New Deal as the gold standard for progressive reform? Historian Gabriel Winant, author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, 
joins Labour Wave Radio in Philadelphia. Nina Banks discusses the scholarship and ideas of Sadie Alexander, the nation's first black economist on the State of Working America podcast. Then in Working People, Max talks to Professor Richard Wolfe about how to understand COVID-19 within the context of American capitalism and its development since the 1970s. The Brazilian Olympic team put in an impressive performance in Tokyo, finishing first among Latin American countries. But the Brazil Workers podcast puts out a call for better funding for the country's athletes who are getting the short end of the stick when compared to more profitable sports. Finally, bad lighting, extraneous noises and messy bedrooms. For actors, casting calls have been transferred from an in-person to a self-recorded format within the past eight months. Casting director Kim Williams discusses the new rules of the road on the SAG-AFTRA podcast. This is Patrick Dixon with the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's this week's show. This is Monday Morning QB, August 9th, 2021. I'm Askiya Mohammed. A new culture war has emerged in the U.S., one focused on the teaching of history and racism. As we've documented on Monday Morning QB, the political right has sought to demonize critical race theory and paint any instruction about racism as CRT. But while the new conservative boogeyman is very much an imagined threat, the potential educational harm of teaching limited histories is all too real. Chris Banker Drowns reports. Conservative activist Christopher Rufo tweeted in March his goal of turning critical race theory toxic by compiling a host of left ideas under the term and, quote, driving up negative perceptions. Months later, Rufo's misinformation war is in full swing, but not without opponents. The 1.7 million member American Federation of Teachers has pushed back on bills introduced in dozens of state legislatures seeking to constrain how the history of racism is taught in classrooms. AFT President Randy Weingarten, who is also on tour promoting a safe return to schools this fall, spoke to me from outside a teacher's conference in Montana about this conservative effort to limit honest teaching. It's always hard to teach history, K through 12. There's always been issues that have been touchstones and inflection points as America changes. And so what they're doing is they're just trying to toxify it as a way of creating a political wedge and as a way of creating fear. The, the question about whether or not they'll be successful is a matter of whether or not we can be out there, not just AFT members, teachers, but whether good intention people around the country will say, wait a second, this is not what's happening here. And let's make sure that we don't deprive our students 
of what they need to succeed because somebody, Steve Bannon or Chris Rufo or others, want to try to win an election. And it, we shouldn't have to do this orga, organizing. You know, we got a lot of other jobs we have to do. But if we really believe in giving the best opportunity to all our kids, that means making sure they are exposed to all the things they need to learn and to be able to navigate through that and understand through that and arrive at their own conclusions and think critically. And and that's our job as teachers. So long-term, I think we win this one, but short-term, it's really ugly in different places. You've been very consistent in highlighting the potential harms to students of teaching inaccurate or limited histories. What are the long-term consequences for students both individually and as a generation if we fail to teach honestly? The long-term effects of, of not teaching accurately or honestly or ensuring that kids have to deal with troubled aspects of not only our past but our present is twofold. Number one, it denies the lived experience of people. If you don't teach about incarceration of Japanese Americans, you're not denying the lived experience, not only a generation of Japanese Americans in America in you know, the 1940s, all of their descendants. And then, so lived experience is really important. But the other thing that's really important is for everyone else who doesn't have this lived experience because they start learning about other people and about other things. And it creates a a much bigger and better palette in terms of what America is about and the context and the rationale and the reasons for why things get done. And it gives them a sense of context that prepares them for their own lives. That, that it gives them a sense of critical thinking, a way of dealing with hardship of themselves and others. So frankly, I make the argument that it is as important for people who don't have this lived experience to be able to walk in other people's shoes and to be able to be comfortable with that which is uncomfortable. We all in real life deal with uncomfortable things. Could you imagine if you get in school the muscles to deal with discomfort, it's going to help you for the rest of your life. That's Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. Hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored episode 227. Over the last few months, you may have noticed a bunch of big corporations scrambling to demonstrate their sound ethical judgment. From Coca-Cola's Black Lives Matter ads to the special edition rainbow Lego set made especially for Pride Month. And just last week, Ben & Jerry's sparked a global hoopla by announcing that it would stop selling its ice cream in the occupied Palestinian territories, and a partial but significant capitulation to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. 
All these moves are exercises in corporate social responsibility, which typically takes the form of environmental and social ethics pledges, fair trade certification, or sweatshop-free sourcing initiatives. Sometimes these are referred to as multi-stakeholder initiatives in corporate speak, or MSIs. Basically, they aim to demonstrate that these are not rapacious, socially destructive, capitalist enterprises we're talking about, but rather good corporate citizens that give back to the community and strive to minimize their damage to society and to ecosystems. But when it comes to MSI protocols on labor rights, many of these initiatives are essentially designed as top-down schemes, largely controlled by the corporations that sponsor them or by business-friendly auditing systems that end up acting effectively as rubber stamps. We speak with Anna Canning, campaigns manager for the Fair World Project, a group that helps organize worker-driven social responsibility initiatives that serve as an alternative to standard corporate-controlled MSIs. Recently, the group was one of dozens that called out the certification group Fair Trade USA for launching a Fair Trade Dairy Program which many have criticized as corporate-friendly, quote-unquote, fair-washing. We come out, here at Fair World Project, come out with a variety of positions on, like, specific labels, depending on, like, really what they're, how they're built up. And one of the key things that we're always looking for is... Are the people that this is supposed to support, are they at the table defining the agenda and the solutions? And that's a really big distinction that plays out across so many of the labeling initiatives is that you have somewhere like the people who are supposed to be benefiting are like building the standard and have a required seat on the board. There's like a certification called small producer symbol that you barely ever see on the shelf, but it's developed by Latin American coffee farmers for a really specific purpose to recognize small scale farmers as in opposition to plantation agriculture. And that like as a purpose serves its purpose and it's built for that. And those are the people in the driver's seat. But I think overall, what we see with voluntary certification is that there's a fundamental difference between envisioning people as rights holders or as benefits of a company's corporate social responsibility programming, right? And like workers' rights are essential. Those are human rights, while corporate social responsibility like really puts the focus on the company doing good and then hopefully some of that good stuff will trickle down to people that they that work for them or are further down the line in their supply chain. And I think what we've really seen over the past 20 years or something is this development of ethical certification as kind of company reputation management as opposed to helping edge along some kind of broader transformation of the system. Why do you think that a program that at least at the beginning may have at least purported to have pure intent ended up taking this specific form? Yeah, I think we've seen the growth of corporate social responsibility in a variety of forms back in the 90s, like Nike having huge sweatshop exposés happening all the time. And then there's been really a development of within that garment industry, like 
companies making all kinds of codes of conduct and all of that. And I came up actually through the coffee industry. And there you had small scale coffee farmers organized in their cooperatives, like really rooted within like the Latin American cooperative movement and the visions of an anti-colonial lens and really seeing plantation agriculture as part of this industrial system that they were coming up against. And then the decision was made to take the sort of solidarity buying that existed through really limited channels to buy those farmers' products and then bring them to a mainstream market and give some additional volume to those small-scale farmers and allow people to see oh, those are farmers I want to support. We have throughout history seen the ways that there's a power in worker-led boycotts, for example, to support their negotiations with companies. But so often ethical labeling has really watered down that sort of solidarity effort into what is called quote-unquote conscious consumerism. And instead of focusing on all of the ways that people have power in their labor, in their communities, it distills all that down to purchasing power, which really then just serves to continue the status quo. That was Anna Canning, campaigns manager for the Fair World Project. This is Labor Wave Radio. Gabriel Winant, welcome to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for having me. Nice to join you. So your book is called The Next Shift, and I really love it a lot. There's so much details in the book. It's such a rich history. It's not possible to cover everything in an hour that you cover. So what I wanted to do is just focus on the story of unions, the story of working class power or lack of working class power in this period that you focus on. And this period of time clearly has a lot of ramifications for today. And particularly what you're talking about with the New Deal and how that, you know, both facilitated some progress in some places, but also was a repressive force in others. What's interesting to me is I saw you tweet out a while ago about the curiosity of today's organizers and activists really going deep and trying to go all out to basically recreate the New Deal. And you pointed out that we tried that and it failed. So why, what lessons does this period in time teach us about the failures of the New Deal as well as the promises and whether or not this is actually something we should be trying to reconstitute today? You know, what I was trying to get at with that was that I would never deny the real gains from millions and millions of working class people, both you know, economic gains, but also dignity on the job in various ways, power on the job in various ways, and beyond the job, things like attempt to construct public housing and for all that that got messed up by later policy. And you can name a million different areas of life where the New Deal had a positive progressive effect. However, first of all, like it fell, right? And I think it makes sense when you look back on something that you think was in many ways positive, but which fell under attack. I think it's incumbent on you if you're politically serious to do more than just say, oh, bad guys got it. That's okay, fine, sure. Why were they able to? That's a question you have to ask. How are you going to be prepared for them? How are you going to like, deal with whatever contradictions in your own program make you vulnerable? I mean, my book argues that there's both the kind of, these are related to each other, both the kind of limits of collective bargaining for those who are represented by it, 
And then there's the, the limits of it in terms of who it represents. And so there's both like auto workers don't control the process of production. And also there's the fact that it's harder for African-Americans to begin, become auto workers. And if they are, they have the worst job, right? And there's the fact that no women are steel workers. And for women to get access to social citizenship and economic security, they have to get married to a steel worker. And it's very, I think this is amazing how unknown this is. It's very explicit. It's like lots of New Deal policymaking, that the agenda is to create single breadwinner households. This is like what they're trying to do. They're really clear about it. So then by the 70s and 80s, what are the politics that undo the New Deal? They're the politics uh, I mean, of white racism, which succeeds in establishing a major constituency among working class people, of kind of revanchist, politicized patriarchal politics, which again, has a kind of pretty broad social constituency. And the, what's being contested in the moment that the New Deal order falls is the question of the white single breadwinner family and whether you can, what it would mean to continue to organize a social order through, or can you continue to organize a social order through uh, routing economic security through that. I mean, the politics of inflation, which are like calamitous in the 70s for liberalism, are all about this because some sections of the working class are relatively shielded from inflation by collective bargaining. And some are not. And then those are, again, are pitted against one another. I think like the way we should think about history is not, was it good? Was it bad? Was this a good guy? Was this a bad guy? I don't think that's that helpful. I think rather what's more useful is to think about history as a kind of evolving contradictory process in which like everything that happens is in some way, both bad and good. And our job is not to kind of reach a final verdict on it, but rather try to position ourselves historically downstream from it. The book is called The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. I got to say that I love this book a lot and I really appreciate your time talking to us about it on Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for having me. This is great. Hello and welcome to the State of Working America podcast. Today we delve into the economic ideas and analyses of our nation's first Black economist, Sadie Alexander, thanks to the painstaking work of Nina Banks, who spent years unearthing Alexander's writings and putting them together in her just-released book, Democracy, Race, and Justice, The Speeches and Writings of Sadie T.M. Alexander. So now Alexander talked a lot about the dignity of war and seemed to evolve a bit in some ways from putting the onus at one point on Blacks to combat racism and to do more themselves, to pushing for government and then the society as a whole to overhaul the nation's racist system. Can you discuss that evolution? Sure. In the 1920s, Sadie Alexander did put the onus, the burden, I think, on African-Americans, because this is a period of time where African-Americans have the opportunity for the first time in our history to be employed in large numbers in the industrial sector as a result of the demand for world for workers during World War One. And so she studies the Great Migration. And when she starts to write about African-Americans and the industrial sector, 
she really puts forward the idea that African-Americans should avail themselves of these opportunities. But by the 1930s, there is a shift in her focus away from placing the burden on African-Americans to focusing on the important role of government. And this happened during the Great Depression and the New Deal policies where she saw the possibilities for having legislation that would provide more opportunities or equal opportunities to African-Americans as provided to white work. But what she came to realize during that period of time is that those policies which were racially neutral on paper were in fact not racially neutral when it came to their impact, that they had a disparate impact on African-Americans, either because of exclusions with respect to occupations and industries or the way in which they were administered. And we see that really by the 1960s, where African-Americans have become ghettoized in slums, often in northern areas. And so the focus then shifts to provide race conscious programs for African-Americans. And with respect to jobs, in 1963, she advocated for affirmative action for African-Americans because she believed that racial discrimination was the norm. It was the standard, the default. And so she said that anything other than affirmative action for employment constituted discrimination. Do you think a lot of her work, her recommendations do make sense today? I think is very much relevant and in need today is a federal job guarantee. Sadie Alexander believed that everybody who was willing and able to work and wanted, wanted to have work should be entitled to have a job. She thought that unemployment was the biggest economic problem the nation faced. So in 1945, Sadie Alexander gives a speech where she picks up on this notion of full employment and also argues that we need to have full employment policies. But unlike Roosevelt, she linked it to racial issues because of the persistence of racial discrimination against African Americans. So the other thing I think which is really interesting and relevant is that she believed that full employment could be achieved through public works programs that involved investments in social infrastructure. So not just the typical infrastructure of putting money into the building industries, because that tends to be biased in favor of white men, but putting public money into social infrastructure, into programs that target social needs. When Sadie Alexander was working on her dissertation right during World War I, there was a lot of racial scapegoating um, and mob violence directed against African Americans. She didn't think that unemployment caused racial violence, but she believed that economic uncertainty helped to ignite it, that it often was used as a pretext that led to racial scapegoating. And that is what happened after World War II. And that, of course, led to the um, formation of the Truman Committee on which she served. So the issue of, I think, racial scapegoating and racial violence and the need to have economic policies that would diminish that tendency and to safeguard democracy was certainly very important to her. Do you ever feel 
feel at all discouraged that sometimes it seems like, like are, are we moving forward or not moving forward? Yeah, and I think that Sadie Alexander was frustrated. I'm not discouraged, I'm annoyed and I'm angry. Progress is not linear um, by any means. And I think this also speaks to the fact that racial oppression is a central organizing feature of our economy. It's not going away anytime soon. And so we need to, as Sadie Alexander said, we need to have a radical reappraisal of our methods and also, I think, a restructuring of the way that we've been doing business. Thank you so much for... Great conversation. Again, Nina's book is Democracy, Race, and Justice, The Speeches and Writings of Sadie T.M. Alexander. Welcome, everyone, to this special video edition of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. Brought to you in partnership with The Real News Network and In These Times Magazine. My name is Maximilian Alvarez. I could not be more honored to be joined by Professor Richard Wolf. Richard Wolf is the Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and of the founder of Democracy at Work and host of their nationally syndicated show, Economic Update, which if you haven't watched it, uh, you absolutely should. Thank you so much for joining me today. Max, it's a pleasure to do so and to be a part of the Real News Network and its allied associated entities. So I wanted to ask if we could harness that narratorial power that you have to help people understand the terrain of the working class, who and what it is, where they're working and and what their kind of conditions for living and working are. Sure. The reality is we have been in an environment, particularly since the 1970s, when American capitalism had the end of its special time. American capitalism found itself competing, no longer in charge, no longer the dominant society that was controlling everything. At that point, the capitalists did what they always do, but extra. They had to find a way to compete. And so they came down on their working class. They really went to work to smash the unions, and they did a really good job. They took the factories out, and they went to wherever the labor was cheaper, wherever they could get the job done by someone else. That begins what we used to call the deindustrialization of the United States. And COVID is kind of the last step of it, but it has been going on for decades before that, which is why Americans feel pressured stressed. There's never quite enough money. And the 1970s, they did the biggest thing, which in a way is the most tragic. They stopped raising the wages. Over all the intervening 40 years, workers became more productive in America. But the employer who pays the wage gave the worker the same. Of course, the rich get richer. They're getting the growth. The working class isn't. But because we didn't organize them then, individual American workers thought it was their problem, not this economic reality. You know what they did? They worked more hours. You know, if you're not getting paid any more per hour like you used to, well, then you got to do more workers, do more hours. Wages didn't cover it. Wages couldn't afford it. 
So they did that thing we all know. They borrowed more money than any working class in the history of the world ever borrowed. More money for your mortgage for your home, money to buy your car on time. And then the last one of the last 30 years, college debt. 2008 was the wake-up call. That's the end of the borrowing binge. There's no binge left. So now the squeezing is getting harder because there's no fantasy offset of credit. People are desperate now. The COVID is now forcing those who are employers, if they're going to survive, to squeeze even harder. And it's making life extremely difficult. And you know, the interesting thing is it's making the working class if I dare use this term, come a little bit out of hibernation. The United States is one of the richest countries in the world. We have one of the most developed medical systems in the world. And we're number one in the people who died of COVID. That is a level of failure that is epic. And I'm beginning to wonder whether this level of failure to cope will not, in fact, be what historians remember was the signal that there's something fundamentally wrong here. We have the equipment, the tools, the factory, we have the workers who want work, and we have the work needing to be done. And this system cannot put it together because unless there's profit in it, nothing happens. We're held hostage. For me, the very ability you and I have in this moment to have this conversation is itself a symptom that this system is over. Well, on that note, I think we can <laughs> call this a wrap again. These are the stakes. This is the task. And, and the time is very much now. Professor Richard Wolf founder of Democracy at Work and host of their show, Economic Update. I can't thank you enough for joining me. Welcome to Brazil Workers Podcast by CESP com Lutas Labor and People's Federation from Sao Paulo. My name is Sami Gabriela Teixeira, and every week we launch a new episode about labor and people's issues. The Tokyo Olympics will win this weekend, August 8th. Brazil has got 10 medals, the best performance among the Latin American countries. Even so, the lack of funding for the Brazilian Olympic team is choking. 130 out of 309 athletes have no sponsorship. 59 athletes live on less than $400 a month, including 22 who live on less than $200. 13 athletes had to do a crowdfunding to come to the Olympics. Five athletes are Uber drivers. The two gold medalists come from poor working class families, like the 22-year-old Rebecca Andrade, the gold and silver medalist in vaulting and artistic gymnastics 
was raised in a working-class neighborhood by a single mother together with seven brothers and sisters. I'm going for a huge vault, beautifully performed. Oh, that's how you start the all-round. Italo Ferreira, the surfing gold medalist, is a fisherman's son. In the amazing country of Brazil has so much to be proud of. Gold medal. Brazil's first gold Marrera. All Brazilians are very proud of them and demand the authorities to provide meaningful funding to all sport modalities instead of prioritizing profitable sports. Thank you all for listening our weekly podcast, Solidarity Forever. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Gabrielle Carteris, president of SAG-AFTRA. And I'm Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, national executive director of SAG-AFTRA. Indeed you are. (sighs) Feels good to say it. There you go. As the world (laughs) slowly opens back up, more and more productions have begun to ramp up. And this means more opportunities for actors to find work. So what are casting directors looking for? And what can you do to ensure a memorable audition, even if you don't get the part? To help answer that question and many more, we have one of the best casting directors in the business. Kim Williams is VP of Casting at Disney Television Studios, where she works on projects for the network, Disney Plus, and ABC Studios. And this is a very exciting time because Kim actually was recently named the new president of the Casting Society of America. So you've been doing this for quite a while. Can you talk to us about how pre pandemic, what you saw going on and what you see as a result of the pandemic? Obviously, there's been a huge shift in its virtual casting pretty much 99% of the time. And so even though self-tapes existed before, there is definitely now that is the way to get cast. And I think it's a really great opportunity for actors because it's an opportunity for them to be in a comfortable, safe space to do their best work. And I love that. I love that. And there's also an opportunity for us to see more people than we would be able to in a traditional setting when you're having actors come into your office, which is also great. I think it's interesting. I'm going to push back a little bit because I want to actually have this uh, dialogue because our members are really interested in the self-tape. I think as an actor, and you could say in casting, to be able to see if somebody's directable. That's a good thing that comes out of auditions. The self-tape part of it, when you're saying the idea that their interpretation, it might not be right, because we miss out then on the nuance of an adjustment, that might be a role they would have been right for. How do we get to it without having the interaction with the casting director? So that part of it hasn't gone away. So what happens is it's more of like you see a group of people and then you narrow it down and that narrowed down group gets another set of notes. And so that process of it hasn't really changed. The only difference is the actor's not getting that note necessarily in the beginning. But for example, if I'm starting a project and I'm seeing a bunch of people, I'm not giving notes to everybody who comes in to audition Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. I give the notes to the people who come in, same thing, based on their interpretation, the work that they've done. And then I give, you know, specific notes to people or... Again, for my callback session, 
there are certain people that are going to come back. Mm -hmm. So that part of it has not changed. It's different, but it's not changed. Let's talk about that first self-tape. What are you looking for? We see self-tapes in all shapes and sizes, as it were. I think the key things to keep in mind are your setting, your lighting, your sound, and those are the key things. I think sometimes we get in tapes where people, for whatever reason, have not taken that into consideration, and we get distracted by what's in the background. So, for example, we recently got a self-tape of an actor who was in their bedroom, and it was one of the messiest bedrooms I've ever seen. So it took me a couple of views to even get to the audition because I'm so busy watching or looking at all this stuff that's going on behind, or you get the self-tape of somebody and you can't see them because mm. the lighting is just all wrong, or you can't hear them, or there's other noises that are drowning out their vocals. And so I think those are the things to focus on, obviously outside of your performance, I think those are the things to be aware of and adjust for that. What would you say is a memorable audition for you? When you are watching a self-tape. You know, what I find, and I find this in person auditions often, is a lot of actors make safe choices mm. and they don't push beyond or think bigger than what is there. And, and I don't mean going big and broad or anything like that. Not pushing. In, in context of whatever the character is that you're auditioning for. But think about what's your first choice for this? What's your next choice for this? And then what's the next choice? And then from there, figure out what you're going to do and what your performance is going to be. I really appreciate your being here. It's so wonderful to see you. Thank you guys Thank for you having so me. Thank you so much. Yes. This has been a great conversation. So good. Yes. This brings us to the end of the latest magical mystery tour of the more than 100 Labour radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labour Radio Podcast Network. If you'd like to climb into a yellow submarine and dive deeper, you can find many more strange and fabulous delights at labourradionetwork.org. You can also find them by using the hashtag LabourRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith and myself, produced by Chris Bang at Drowns, and promoted on social media by Harold Phillips, who would never be caught casting for a role in front of a messy bedroom. For Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Patrick Dixon. Hope to catch you next time. Mm-hmm.